Galatians chapter 5 this morning. Galatians 5. Diplomats in foreign countries are often granted immunity, diplomatic immunity, a kind of freedom from most prosecution. And that's a tremendous advantage, a tremendous blessing, because it enables them to do their work with less fear of reprisal uh, from the country in which they're serving. But did you know that every year... Millions of dollars in illegal parking tickets go unpaid by foreign diplomats because they're immune. Um, Some foreign embassies have racked up hundreds of thousands of dollars in back taxes. And more seriously, uh, a few years ago, I read an article about a teen girl, the daughter of a diplomat in Washington, D.C., a private school there who who had stabbed a 13-year-old classmate and was using diplomatic, the family was using diplomatic immunity to try to shield her from from prosecution. Just a few weeks ago, uh, Prince Andrew's lawyer uh, went on record saying that he was considering uh, arguing diplomatic immunity in order to uh, shield himself from accusations of sexual abuse. And of course, through the years, this freedom that diplomats have been granted has been used for all kinds of ill purposes, immunity being used in ways that it was never intended to be used as a cover for drug smuggling, kidnapping, sex trafficking, and even murder at times. But friends, in the same way as a Christian, what an amazing thing it is to be free from the law to be free from the judgment and the condemnation of the law, to be out from under the law's legal jurisdiction over us. But at the same time, what a perverted thing then for a so-called Christian to use his freedom as an opportunity to just exercise the passions of his sinful flesh to rebel against the God who has freed him and set him at liberty from condemnation of the law. And this is what Paul is intent to communicate in this section, this last part of chapter 5. We're going to read verses 13 through 23, Galatians 5, beginning in verse 13, although our text really begins in verse 18. But let's get a running start, if you will. Galatians 5.13 For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. 
For these things are opposed to one another to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, division, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We'll stop there. You know, there is a kind of irony that those who are truly free from the law are actually those who truly do the law. That's the, Christ, that's the irony of the Christian life. We're free from the law, and yet Christians are the only people who truly obey the law. I mean, from their heart, with joy, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So on the one hand, uh, if you'll notice verse 18, he says, if you are led by the Spirit, you are what? Oh, are you with me? Did I say the wrong verse? Something's wrong. There's a gap here in our communication. Verse 18, he says, if you are led by the Spirit, you are what? Not Oh, that's so much better. You're not under the law. Right? So on the one hand, he's saying, okay, if you're a Christian, you're not under the law. What does it mean to be under the law? To be under the law is to be under the law's jurisdiction, under its dominion, under its rule, under its bonds. The New Testament actually uses two really beautiful illustrations of our freedom from the law, from the condemnation of the law, and the jurisdiction and the and the, the, the implementing of the sanctions of the law. Um, we Christians are like uh, slaves who have been redeemed out of bondage to that master. We're bought out from under his servitude, and now we're set free. So you can imagine a slave who was redeemed from his former master, of all things, going back to that master and saying, what may I do to serve you, master? No, he's set free, right? He's not under the master anymore, and in the same way, we're not under the law. There's another illustration that's used in the Scripture, and that is that a Christian is like a wife who is released from the bonds of marriage to this man by virtue of his death. This is what we just read in in Romans 7, right? If the man dies, she's not bound in marriage to him as if she can never be married to anyone else, right? The, The death has released her. She's free from the bonds of that holy matrimony. In that same way, the Lord has released us from the bonds of the law, from the jurisdiction of the law. So that's the one hand, right? As Christians, we're free from the law. 
But look at, on the other hand, I want you to know that this release from the law does not bring a Christian into a place of absolute autonomy, as if he's just a law unto himself and he can do whatever he wants and live any way he wants because he's set free from all of God's commands and the, and the punishments that are meted out on disobedience to those commands. And these, that principle is embedded in both of those same illustrations. Let's go back to those illustrations. The one about the slave who was bought out of the slavery to sin, to the law. What, what happens to him? He's not just set loose in the town. He becomes the slave of a new master. Oh, but this master is so much more gracious than the other. For this master not only holds the virtue of that law, but he keeps that law in the place of this new slave. But we're slaves. We serve a new master. We're not, we're not autonomous. And the same thing is true in the illustration of the bride in Romans 7. She is set free from her former husband. She's released from the bonds of matrimony. But what happens? Now she becomes the bride of a new husband. And whereas the old relationship in the law brought nothing but sin and death, this new relationship, this new communion with Christ, this new oneness of husband and wife brings Fourth, fruit. That relationship is fruitful. It's a joy to look around and see a lot of fruitful families in this church, right? This relationship with Christ is now fruitful and it brings forth the fruit of experiential righteousness in this bride. She finds herself with child of the Holy Spirit, as it were. And the fruit of her womb is love and joy and peace and gentleness and goodness and faithfulness and meekness and self-control. Though we are free from the law, Christians Christians always strive to live in such a way as is in conformity with God's moral commandments. So you see in verse 23, this is where I wanted to point your attention. After listing out what it looks like to live under the Spirit, to walk in, in the Spirit, he says, notice the end of verse 23, against such things, what? There is no law. There's laws. God gave laws against all of these things. There's no laws against these things. This is, I think, an understated way of expressing the conformity of the Spirit-filled life with the moral law of God. Not only that there is no law against these kinds of behaviors that are described as the fruit of the Spirit, but also that they are, in fact, the very fulfillment of the law that God As Paul said in Romans 7.12, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. There's nothing wrong with the law. When we say then we're freed from the law, it's not because we're not rejoicing because there was something deficient about the law. We have to get out from under that deficiency. No, the deficiency is not with the law. The law is holy and righteous and good. The deficiency is with us, right? The deficiency is with us. The gospel frees us from the law as a legal framework. 
We are out from under the jurisdiction of the law, like the woman whose husband has died is freed from the bonds of that marriage, and now she can be married to another. We are freed from the law as a legal framework, but that doesn't mean that we are free from the law as a guide for the Christian life. In fact, a Christian does live in a way, he lives in a way by the Spirit, as is in keeping with the law of God. So Romans chapter 3, verse 31, Paul says, in our gospel, do we overthrow the law by this faith? He says, by no means. We're not overthrowing the law. We're not throwing the law out. On the contrary, he says, we uphold the law. In other places, he says, we fulfill the law. We keep the law from our hearts. Freedom from from the law, freedom in Christ, means that Christians don't strive to keep the law like a slave who's afraid of getting beaten by his master if he doesn't do what he has to do. No, Christians keep the law like a son who loves his father and obeys his commandments with joy. That's the freedom of a Christian. We don't conform to the law externally in the flesh, in our natural power, but we do have, as it were, the law of God written on our hearts. We obey by the Spirit who indwells us. Now I want to ask a series of questions to lead us into this text starting with the question that I asked last week, which was this. Who is it? Who of us is it who is free from the law? Who's not under its legal obligation and condemnation for sin? Who is that? And of course, the answer is, all through Paul's Gospel, is that it's that those, it is those who are in Christ by faith, right? Those who are in Christ by faith. But my next question is this. Well, where did that faith come from? Where does that faith union with Christ have its origin? What about in me? In me, that is in my flesh, there is no good thing. It didn't have its origin in me. It came from the Holy Spirit. Amen? The Spirit who regenerates me, who unites me to Christ by God's mercy, who brings me to faith, who indwells me. Now the next question is this, well, how would you know if you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit? How do you know that the Holy Spirit has come to take up residence in you and thus set you free from the law's condemnation? And the answer that Paul's getting at here in this text is in verse 18. Take a look again. Verse 18, if you are what? If you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. How do you know that you're a person in whom the Holy Spirit dwells free from the law's condemnation? Because you're led by the Spirit. So then that brings me to my final question. How do you know you're led by the Spirit? What does that look like? And Paul, in this passage, gives two answers to that question. Verses 19 to 23, he gives a negative answer 
what it does not look like to live in the Spirit, rather living in the flesh, and on the other hand, a positive answer. And by these things we might know whether we are in the flesh or in the Spirit. These things are evidenced by the way that we live. As verse 19 says, it is evident. The works of the Spirit are evident in the life. I'm sorry, the works of the flesh are evident in the life of a person who's still in the flesh. Likewise, the works, the fruit of the Spirit is evident in the life of a person who is in the Spirit. So let's examine these for a few minutes this morning. What's the negative answer to this question, who really is led by the Spirit? Well, the negative answer, this is not evidence of the Spirit, but of the flesh. It's listed there in your text. Paul just goes into this whole list of things. The first three of these works of the flesh are sexual sins. Sexual immorality is the first word. That's the Greek word porneia, which refers to all kinds of sexual sin. Very broad term. Any kind of sexual expression that is not in keeping with the will of God is covered by this word. In the New Testament, this word is used to indicate um, an incident of incest. In another case, um, prostitution or visiting a prostitute. In another case, premarital sexual activity or partner swapping and mixed sexual encounters, or adultery, or divorcing a person just so you can go be with somebody else, or acts of homosexuality. All of these are described by this term. This is one of the works of the flesh, an identifying marker of the old Adamic nature. Impurity. Impurity is is part of the same class of sins as porneia or sexual immorality. But what's interesting about this term, impurity, is that in a couple of the contexts where it's used in the New Testament, it doesn't refer to any act at all, but rather to thoughts and motives. And I want to ask you, friends, if if we all understand I, that we understand that we can be sexually impure without ever committing any particular act. This is when a man looks upon a woman with lustful intent in his heart, a man, a woman who is not his own wife, or a woman who indulges the romantic daydream about a man who is not her husband. This impurity uh, characterizes the old flesh so characteristic of the old flesh. Included in this class of impurity is the lust that's often fueled by pornography. What a scourge that is for our young people, and and sometimes our not-so-young people, if we're honest. I fail to understand why some homes continue to have an unfiltered internet, especially if uh, someone in that home struggles with uh, pornography. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Can 
anyone walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched. Friends, one day you can bank on it, you will be burned. You do not put this away. Put it off. Repent of all impurity. And the third term used of sexual sin here is sensuality. She's not strictly sexual, but often has that connotation. It's living for the pleasures of your senses, what you can see and smell and taste and hear and touch. It's letting the flesh, the implication is like almost like the, you're letting the flesh just run loose. You're letting, letting go. Just kind of letting your inhibitions down. Giving in to unchecked passions of the flesh. Sensuality. Works of the flesh. The next two in Paul's list refer to a refusal to worship the one true and living God. He speaks of idolatry. And if you want to think of a good definition of idolatry, just think of Romans chapter 1. They worshipped and served what? The creature rather than the creator. That's probably the best definition of idolatry you can come up with. To worship and serve the creature or anything, anything in, at all in all of creation more than you serve, worship and serve the one true and living God. And of course that can be any number of things. Ephesians chapter 5 and Colossians chapter 3, both places, Paul says that coveting is actually a form of idolatry. We don't like to think of ourselves as idol worshipers. I mean, God forbid. But who has not been tempted to be covetous? To look upon that which is not rightfully his. Wish it for himself. The point of making that thing an all-consuming idol of his mind. Covet, uh, idolatry, covetousness is a form of idolatry. You know, by the way, in that way, it's almost like the Ten Commandments come full circle, right? The very first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. And the last one is, you shall not covet. Which is, in a sense, a form of idolatry. Covetousness, of course, essentially says, God, I don't like the way you've dished out the goods. It's a fundamental dissatisfaction with the providence of your God. Is there something, is there something, even as a Christian perhaps, that you've been tempted to allow to take the place of God in your mind? To become just that important? To where everything else, even God's word and will, are tempted to be, you're tempted to sacrifice those things in order to achieve this one thing. Idolatry. Sorcery. Sorcery refers to the consulting of astrologers, fortune tellers, spiritual mediums, any appeal to any kind of spiritual power or governing force besides God. People given to their flesh and you just find this. If you travel the world enough, you'll find that this is a universal manifestation of the, the flesh. Uh, a desire to turn to other gods, so to speak. Other spiritual forces. The next grouping of works of the flesh have to do with social sins. And by the way, this one is the greatest in number. I'm not sure if that says anything to us. But I do find it very interesting that these sins against each other 
um, get the most space in this inspired letter. And if, in fact, many of them are in the plural, which we might we might say, you know, something like this in the singular. And 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 I think probably the idea behind that is that there are multiple expressions, all different kinds of ways that our our idiosyncratic flesh can manifest these various. Um, expressions listed here. What are, what, what do we have? We have enmity. Enmity is a work of the flesh. This is the bitterness. The bitterness of heart that lies at the root of so much of our discord. That bitterness that is rather than turned over to God and repented of, it's, um, it's coddled. Enmity, strife. This is the contention that divides us. Jealousy is the selfishness that fuels that contention so often. And then sometimes envy, or enmity rather, bursts out in what Paul calls fits of anger. I'm talking about uncontrolled temper. This is a, a work of the flesh, friends. This, this does not come from the Spirit. The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. God deliver us from fits of anger and from rivalries where we pit ourselves against others in selfish ambition, at least in our minds. Rivalries. Do you have a mental rivalry with somebody else? You embattled against them subtly in your own mind. And how sad to see dissensions and divisions in the church or in our homes. Fragmentation, isolation, cliquishness. Feeling like we're morally superior to the others in this assembly. God deliver us from dissensions and divisions. And how much of all of that is driven by envy, desire to possess what someone else has, to be the beneficiary of their good providence, not being satisfied with the gifts that God has given. Envy. And all of these are evidenced and our evidence in families and in churches of people not being led by the Spirit. And sadly, all of these come all too naturally to us. Am I right? This is why it's called the flesh. So it doesn't mean it's our body that's sinful. It means it's what's by nature that's sinful. It, it, for, this is our default position, in other words, right? Even as Christians, this is where, this is where if we're not walking in the Spirit, yielding to the Spirit, dying to self and learning the joy of Christ's life being flowing through us, this is where we will default to. So fight for that. To know what it is to walk in the Spirit. We're going to talk about this a little bit more even next Lord's Day, Lord Lord. And then there is, uh, two minor, final manifestations of the flesh. It's just kind of a dissolute life. He talks about drunkenness. 
which earlier we talked about sensuality, right? This is just sensuality manifest in drinking or, or in eating even, especially in drinking. And of course, the Scripture admonishes us everywhere to be sober-minded, to be self-controlled. This is the way that Christians live. And along with drunkenness is orgies. The word translated there refers to general carousing, you might say where alcoholic and sexual passions both flow freely. And you just you don't have to, I guess, look very far in the world that's given over to the flesh completely to see a lot of these manifestations all around us. You visit your average uh, college campus on a Friday night. And the catch-all phrase Paul throws in there is this, and such things, things like these. In other words, this list of sins that accompany our old nature, the who we are apart from the Spirit, is not exhaustive. There are myriads of ways that the sinful nature can be manifest. But then you have this sober warning in verse 21. Take a look again. This is... Just one of those kinds of passages in the Bible that make should make every professing Christian just stop and say, whoa, I need to take stock of myself. Listen to what it says. I warn you as I warned before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. If your life is characterized by those works of the flesh, friend, you are in the flesh. And all of those who are in the flesh are under the condemnation of God for their rebellion against Him, for their ignorance of Him, willful ignorance of His truth, of His, of His saving grace. This is not to say, this is not to say that Christians never struggle with, with the flesh, right? That was the whole point, or one of the points that came from the text that we looked at last week. There is always, within Christians even, this internal battle and struggle between flesh and spirit, though the spirit, in fact, will prevail in those who belong to him. But we're never delivered from the flesh completely until that day we see our blessed Savior. And when we see him, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. Amen? Oh, hey, praise God. I mean, I always say to the Lord, Lord, hasten that day. When my faith is sight, when I shed this old flesh, when I'm made completely new, immortal, and perfected in righteousness and true holiness. This is not to say that Christians don't struggle, but it is to say that they don't make a practice of these things. In fact, if you look in verse 21, if you have an ESV, um, there's a footnote by the word do, those who do such things. And the footnote indicates that another way to translate that would be those who make a practice of doing such things. And I think that's right. That's the word and that's the tense here. It's a habitual, settled practice of giving in to the flesh, of just doing what comes naturally. Maybe... Maybe that person might have even felt badly at one time about those attitudes and actions and 
but later he became apathetic and maybe one day he will become enthusiastic. And this is why it behooves every Christian who begins to feel a kind of apathy towards the flesh creeping in to say, oh God, oh God, deliver me. Let me not go on in in sin. Deliver me from any unbelief. Lord, finish the work that you began. That's the way real Christians pray. Right? Amen? Is that the way you pray? Oh Lord, don't let me become apathetic toward my sin. Oh God, and you just pray and you pray and you pray until God answers. You just hold on to Him until He revives you. Until you chase after righteousness with all your heart. A person whose life is characterized by these things, that is the work of the flesh, the works of the flesh, is still in the flesh. But now in contrast to that, Paul gives the positive evidence of being led by the Spirit. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. This is the first and greatest manifestation of the Spirit of God in our hearts. A real Spirit-wrought love for God and for others, especially God's people. Love for God is at the very heart of fulfilling the commandments, of fulfilling them truly. Keeping the law, friends, is more than just mere obedience. It's obedience out of love for God and love for others. This is what Jesus said, right? On uh, These two are the greatest commandments. Paul said, on these two hang all of the law. Back in verse 14 of chapter 5 here, the whole law is fulfilled in one word, love. You know what it is? Do you know what it is to act out of a real spirit wrought love for God and for His people rather than merely out of a sense of duty? We all know what it is to do things out of duty. And, you know, at the end of the day, we do our duty. But do you know what it is to do these things out of love? And I say in my heart, oh, Spirit of God, bring me more of that. Because that is a delight. There's a joy in that. Laying down my life for somebody out of love for the one who laid down his life for me and who laid down his life for them, that's a joy. But too often, you know, it falls back into this sort of fleshly um, sense of mere duty. The Spirit also, who, who produces love, also produces joy. It's no wonder these two things go together, right? Joy is delight in God that is not dependent on our circumstances. I told you uh, before of the nurse who had a Christian patient who wrote this little statement on his... Uh, on his uh, reports uh, in, for her, her morning, after her morning round, she said, this patient is inappropriately joyful. And that's what Christians are. There's a joy, there's a peace, there's a, 
joy in God that's not linked to what's going on around him because there is a God who stays the same. He's filled with joy and he's got joy because he's at peace with God. Peace with God and at peace with others. And he's really walking in the Spirit as much as lies within him. And the Spirit leading is also manifest in patience. That's long-suffering. That's enduring difficult situations. And I don't know, are there difficult people? Uh, Difficult people enduring those things with grace and graciousness? Because God has been so gracious to us. Christ is so patient with us. So we find ourselves patient. We're filled with the Spirit. The Spirit is characterized by kindness. This is love in action. Not just saying to someone, be warmed and filled. Characterized by goodness. This is moral beauty and uprightness. By faithfulness. This is trustworthiness, loyalty, a dependability that flows from faith. The Spirit-filled person is characterized by gentleness that sows the path of peace as we sing it sometimes. Graciousness when we disagree or when we have to reprove, but there's a, there's a gentleness about it. And self-control, which really is spirit control because we're, not, we're talking about not the old self, but the new self. The spirit controls that person and he is self-controlled. He's no longer the eye of the flesh, but he's the new man in Christ by the Spirit. And again, Paul says at the end of this, against such things there is no law. These are the things that conform to God's law. So far from Christians saying, oh, I'm free from the law so I can live any way I want. No, when they're really led by the Spirit, they do the law from their hearts. They do it imperfectly, but progressively. Always depending on Christ for their righteousness. Christian assurance is actually grounded not just in some kind of subjective feeling. Well, do you feel like you're a Christian? I feel like, I, th- I, th- I think I feel kind of Christian today. Or, or just in, uh, someone's bare profession. Well, yes, I'm, I'm a Christian. Here, Paul says there are, there is objective criteria for evaluation of whether someone is in the flesh or in the spirit. And I ask you, You who name the name of Christ, on this criteria, are you a Christian? Do you love God? Do you have a desire to do His will from your heart? To glorify Him? In closing, I want just to point out that what he describes here is the fruit of the Spirit, right? In other words, the Holy Spirit is the author of these things. He's the one who brings them about. These are not, these are not a checklist of things 
to mark off to try to merit our place before God. As if someone says, well, I'll try harder to be good. I'll try harder to be loving and joyful and peaceful so that I might become a Christian. No, the Christian says, oh God, I'm a sinner. Save me, deliver me, and pour out your Spirit upon me. And that Spirit-filled person bears fruit, but it's the fruit of the Spirit. It's the Spirit of Christ in you. And this is, this is all the glory of the Christian life. All the glory of the Christian life goes to Jesus Christ, who by His Spirit lives out His life in and through His people. And it's a joy to see it, to watch it, to observe Christ living in front of you His life out through His people, filling them with His own love, His own joy, His own peace, His own patience, His own faithfulness. All of these attributes of Christ Himself. What we're talking about is being filled with Christ. Filled with Christ. To be like a channel. An empty vessel. uh, Like a pipe that goes down in the ground. And through it runs the water that brings life to the city. That's what we are. We're this channel through whom Christ lives out His life by His Spirit who's in us. And He tells us that when we do that, when that happens, He 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 bears fruit in us. And that fruit comes, according to John chapter 15, by abiding in whom? By abiding in Christ by abiding in His love, by continuing to allow Christ to abide in us, by allowing His Word, He says, to abide in you, and by having His joy in us. It's all about drawing near to the Spirit of Christ. The Christian life is Christ for me, Christ in me, and Christ through me. That's it. That's the Christian life. We are branches on a tree channels for the life that is inherent in the vine. Real Christian living then, real Christian living ironically is just dying. It is, isn't it? How much of the Bible is is this sort of picture? We were listening, my family and I, to a talk by a man who wrote a book called The J-Curve, talking about dying with Christ and experiencing in the long run uh, new life in Him in the resurrected Christ. That's the whole Christian life. It is experiencing death to the old self, to the old person, and the newness of being a new person in Christ. Progressively, faithfully, by the power of the Holy Spirit, living out the life of Christ in us. So, get on your knees this week and pray, Oh God, Oh Lord Jesus Christ, Oh Spirit of God, take control. Take control until your presence is evident. Till it's evident to me for my own encouragement and to God's people and to the world around me. Show yourself. This is the way that the Christian life ends up never glorifying any particular Christian. Because it's the life of Christ 
lived out in his people. Listen, friends, Paul is arguing in this book that the Christian gospel is that is that we have been set free, but not free to indulge the flesh, free to serve God from the heart by the power that He puts within us. Serving Him, not in the old way, bound to keep every letter of the law under threat of condemnation, but in the new way of the Spirit, set free to serve God with joy, free to know the joy of Christ living through me by His Holy Spirit. May God the Father be praised as we bear the fruit of Christ by the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you pray? Our Heavenly Father, our hearts are resonating with this text. This is what we long for. We desire more of this. We praise You and we bless You that we have tasted some of this. We know what it's like to live in the Spirit, to live by the Spirit, to walk in Him. But oh Lord, we long to know Christ more. We long to die to sin and be an empty vessel, a channel through which Christ Jesus will live out His life in us. Lord, that's the life of joy. That's what we want. Please fulfill our joy by bringing home to our experience Christ in us by His Spirit. We ask You in His name. Amen.